You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. ask you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. If you're new to the Bible and not familiar where that's at, the beginning of the Bible there's a table of contents that will show you in the copy you have where to find that. In the Old Testament, this week I received in the mail what I hold in my hands. I was sent it from my cousin from Minnesota. This is a print-off of my family reunion that I was not a part of in 1993. You can tell it's a print-off from 1993 because it has the dot matrix holes on the side. Numbers of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Bunch of young kids. On this printout, it describes people's names, their addresses, where they live, and who they're related to. And you can imagine, I'm interested in the last name Bancroft as I work my way through the list. Who is that related to? Oh, that's, oh, that's my second cousin. Oh, that's my great aunt. Oh, that's so-and-so's brother. As I read this stuff, I'm fascinated by it as I get to hear the family history that I have. In the page of scripture, we read of our family history. We read of people that God created long before us that have died long since before us, but nevertheless, the story of their family history. It's not printed on dot matrix paper. It was originally written on scrolls, translated and given to us today now and printed in our Bibles before us. But Ezekiel chapter 16 is such a family story. Now, quite honestly, when we get together and talk about our families, especially a highlight of places like funerals, you should tell the good stories. You tell the stuff that everybody likes to go down memory lane on. You don't tell the bad stuff. And you're not really telling the whole story when you do that. Well, God has a way of telling the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In doing so, he speaks about who he is and who we are. And we learn in Ezekiel 16, what's a long chapter we're going to read together, the story of Israel how God saved them and how God walked with them and how they continued to rebel against him. The story in Ezekiel will relate to our understanding of Hosea. So if you would, follow along in your Bible in the story of Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord, God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. 
When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord your God. And with you became, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set more oil and incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. And you set before them a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby, multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. Verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God. 
because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from, all, from the other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, a prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them. They may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the death, the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring you a crowd against, bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you and I will be calm and will no more be angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Verse 44, behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this Proverbs about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. You are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And your elder sister is a Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all their ways. In all your ways, verse 48, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace. 
For you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sister, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. Verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Friends, in these 63 verses, we get an honest summary of the family history of Israel. And honestly, it's provocative to say it mildly. As God describes how he found them, how he chose them and loved them, how they rebelled against him, because of that rebellion, how they became a reproach to others of God, how God then raised up other nations to judge them, but then in restoring them back because not of their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness, that what he promised to do, he would do. An everlasting covenant. That is the large macro picture of the people of Israel that we've been understanding in smaller fashion, the book of Hosea. Over the last two months, we have been going through the book of Hosea together, where the story of the people of Israel and God has been pictured in regards to a marriage. Hosea and Gomer. Gomer, this unfaithful wife who has had children and been unfaithful to her husband, who he's had to go and buy back to bring her back. And this story, as it even describes in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, this wife of whoredom, her unfaithfulness to her husband serves as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. We have been working our way over the last month and a half through the book of Hosea, we come now to the end while we look back at it in one picture at one time. And I do this with the understanding that we might kind of take all the pieces of the puzzle and put it back together to see the big picture, as well as to particularly maybe see some things that we might have missed for the sake of time. Accents that we need to take into consideration. 
Now, let me, if I may, just take a minute stepping aside from Hosea and tell you how you can be helped when you read the Bible. If you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity or you're new as a Christian yourself to Christianity, you might feel quite uncomfortable or unfamiliar with, what do I do with this big book? It seems historically distant from me, culturally other than where I live in Miami. It speaks of names I don't even know how to pronounce confidently. What do I do when I come to the Bible? Do I just bring it to church and hope that that guy, Eric or Chris or Ronald or others will teach it to me? Well, you can certainly do that. God does give the gift of teaching to the church that the church could be strengthened in knowing the word of God. But God intends people to know him and hear from him. So when we read the Bible, there are some questions you can always ask. And I highlight these as amongst many questions you could ask. I wanna just give you a few of these questions because these are questions that are true no matter where you're reading. Psalms, Hosea, Genesis, Revelation, Matthew, uh, the book of Galatians, wherever you're reading, these are questions you could ask. So you can get out of the text, mining it. We'll bring these questions to bear in a minute on Hosea. Questions like, what does the Bible teach me about God? What does this text teach me about God? Questions like, what does this teach me about people? I say about people because we don't want to be so quick to be self-centered in reading of the Bible, as if we're just trying to act like it's all about me. What does God say about creation? What does God say about humanity? What do we identify with in that regards? Now the question is, how will or how has Jesus is coming address this? So if we're reading before the New Testament, particularly before the life of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, how in the book of Hosea or, or Jeremiah, how will those readings be fulfilled in Christ? Something we'll see in Hosea in just a few minutes. Or if we're reading the book of Galatians or in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, how reading back do we see what Christ has done fulfill this and illustrate this? Questions asked are reading the Bible. But as we read it, what about questions asked when applying the Bible? When applying the Bible, questions like, what does God want me to think or believe? Friends, I mean this with all due respect, especially some of you seated around your family members. Your beliefs should not be first based upon what your parents have taught you. I don't mean in any way to despise or to diminish the voice of the parents. God gives a responsibility to the parents. But even parental authority is subject to what the word of God teaches. Or to the cultural default of what you maybe has a tradition growing up in the country you grew up in or the part of the city that you grew up in or the people you grew up around. Or perhaps even what's popular in society around us. Everybody's writing curriculum that we should be learning and be teaching others. But the question is, what does God want me to think or believe? Also, what does God want me to desire? What should the affections of my heart and the desire of my life be reflected as? And thirdly, what does God want me to do? How shall I live in light of what I have read? And let's take those questions and now let's bring it to bear on the book of Hosea. In light of the larger story of Ezekiel 16, now we turn the microscope in, looking closely at the text to begin to see in the book of Hosea, these 14 chapters again, what do we learn about God from Hosea? Number one, we learn that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now that might not be a word that comes commonly out of your mouth and your conversation with other people around you, but let me just describe sovereignty. Sovereignty is a description of power, of prerogative, that God has the power to do all things and he is doing all things. Nothing can stay his hand. Nothing can keep him from accomplishing his purposes and plans. Whatever God wants, God gets. 
which is perfect because only God is qualified in this character of holiness, of perfection, of goodness, should he be having that power. Only he is capable of it because only he is God. God is sovereign. In the book of Hosea, over 100 times over these 14 chapters throughout this book, God speaks in the first person. It is I. It is I, the Lord, who will judge. It is I, the Lord, who will bring punishments. It is I who was given. It is I who was created. It is I who will bring up to pass. Friends, this is important for us to recognize. The sovereignty of God, you either gnash your teeth at or you're greatly comforted by. And how you respond to the sovereignty of God is largely a description and indicative of what your relationship with God is like. If the idea of God being sovereign is something that makes you uncomfortable and or that you want to reject outright, that's often indicative that you're competing with his sovereignty for your own authority. And or believing based on a figment of your imagination, you are doing things outside of his power. And yet we read throughout scripture, especially in the book of Hosea, God mysteriously but nevertheless powerfully is working and not just in individuals' lives, in entire nations' lives. He is rising up nations, using them for purposes, and then putting nations down. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, friends. I have a hard time accomplishing my to-do list for one day. If I got like half of it done, I feel like I was productive. I feel like it was a good day. Like, you know, I returned some emails, made some phone calls, had some meetings, got some reading done, got some writing done, had some good interactions with people, enjoyed time with my wife, interacted with my sons, like, huh. But if you ask me at the end of every day, did you get everything done? Did everything happen the way you wished it would happen? No. No, for sure not. And that doesn't matter, like, I could just drive through the city of Miami, like, no, that's not happening the way I wish it was. That's not happening the way I wish it was. God mysteriously but powerfully does everything according to his plans and purposes. He is involved in the affairs of his covenant people, the affairs of the nations of the world. All of this is in God's hand. The Word of God says that the nations are like a drop in a bucket in comparison to God. I say this because, just as a point of consideration or reflection, friends, if you're anxious about the future, you're a responsible citizen, concerned, rightly so, about the state of affairs in our country, laws being passed, people being appointed and voted into office, corresponding implications of those decisions. I understand there's a, certainly a point of concern by which we are exercised and concerned about any number of affairs. Even some of those points of disagreement, perhaps even in this room. Friends, you understand God's not surprised. God's not caught off guard. God's like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. Oh, give me a minute. I think I can recover from that. Everything is according to his plan. And he uses nations to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. He's doing that even now, mysteriously in our lives, individually and collectively as a people. We also see in Hosea, not only is God sovereign, we also see that God is loving. The Lord has connected himself to Israel in the most intimate of way compared to the most profound of human relationship. It is understandably, arguably said that there's no more significant of a close relationship that someone can have with another than the context of marriage. An exclusivity, 
that you have in this monogamous relationship between one man and one woman that God has ordained together to become one flesh, that this man and woman created in God's image in the anatomical reality of how they come together in physical intimacy, communicating and demonstrating the reality of who they are together in Christ. No greater sacred union can God give to a man and a woman. And it's that relationship that he uses to describe his relationship to his people. A profound, intimate relationship. Tragically, however, Israel has proven faithless in the Lord's stark terms. You see this in Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. What it says here is it describes their mother has played the whore. I will go after my lovers with this belief that these other lovers give bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink, and yet God would later say, it's all coming from me. Embedded in the book of Hosea is this powerful and ever-relevant reminder for God's people and around the world and throughout time. God has bound himself to his people. He has made a covenant with his people that's not based upon their qualification or their continued goodness. Let me just say this as a point of application for you. Christian, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, which is not an uncommon struggle that many of us have, it's possible you're looking in the wrong direction to find that assurance. You are probably, understandably, looking at either what you're doing or how you're feeling to affirm or to challenge whether or not you're really a Christian. I understand that. That's a common temptation for many Christians. But what you're doing is you're confusing the evidence of salvation versus the assurance of salvation. The evidence of salvation, 1 John makes quite clear in how you will display, how you will live. But that's not the assurance of your salvation. The assurance of your salvation means you have to direct your attention not to what you do and how you feel and what experience you have in comparison to others. You have to direct your attention to God who has made that covenant with you through the death of his son. That his son's payment on the cross is all that will ever be needed, has always been given, and is available to all those who ever believe. And then if you believe in Christ, not because of the maturity of your faith, but the object of your faith being in Christ, you are assured of salvation. You are secure in God's love for you, even, embarrassingly, if you don't display that appreciation of God's love for you. That's clearly what's happening with the people of Israel here. So God is a profoundly, unbelievably loving God. You jump ahead to the very end of Hosea chapter 14 where he speaks of all of their problems, as he does in the previous chapters, 25 years of prophecy being summarized in these 14 chapters. And look at what he says in Hosea chapter 14, verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. God will not withhold. He will give abundantly. Third thing we can learn about God from Hosea, not only he is sovereign, not only he is loving, third, he is committed. Hosea's prophecy comes 800 years before Christ. 800 years. Assyria is threatening to invade them and exile God's people out of their promised land. Then it comes to pass. 
Hosea prophesies, it comes to pass. What I want you to understand is all the way back when God took the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness, preparing them for a promised land, he essentially married them. He made a covenant with them. Exodus is God's saving of them and then committing himself to them by giving them the covenant that he had given them. And after he rescues his people from Egyptian bondage and marries them in the wilderness, as you see in Exodus and reminded again in Deuteronomy, he brings them into the land that he promised them, which you see throughout Exodus to Joshua. He grants them their desire for a human king, though they don't need one. They want to be like everybody else and have a king. So God grants them Saul, who, as God said what happened, fails them. And God gives them a better king, David, but even seemingly their best king isn't a perfect king, seen with his murderous decisions and his adulterous relationship. And yet he promises he will continue to care for them. He will rule over them. He will love them. Even when he exiles them, he will not forget them. God will restore the kingship one day. He will restore his people. Hosea chapter 3 You see, as he describes this in verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This is a sweet reminder of God's commitment. This is his covenant to his people. This is what we learn about God from Hosea. The question is, what do we learn about people from Hosea? Well, this is as theologically accurate as I can give it to you. Number one, people are jacked up. You go to somebody to learn terminology like that. People are jacked up. The sinfulness of man is chronicled in detailed fashion. It's found throughout the book, but just to see a brief expose of it, turn to Hosea chapter 4. Look at what he says. Hosea chapter four, verse one, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed and follow bloodshed. And as if to say the people are not just jacked up, you go down to verse five, the leaders are jacked up. Verse four, let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. For my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. I think sometimes we have this vision for humanity that if we just had enough resources. We just had enough education. We just had enough political alignment. We just had enough creation care. We just had enough tax uh, to income ratio decisions. We could kind of create a utopian reality and it would be awesome. Friends, the human experiment of society has been happening for thousands of years. It's never been awesome. It's had different seasons of flourishing and diminishing. We're not all killing each other all the time and skinning each other alive and crazy barbaric things. But it's never been awesome. 
When you leave people to their own devices, this is what they do because coming from within them comes out of them these actions. Not only people are jacked up, secondly, people can have hope. Hope is held out, but only through repentance and returning to the Lord. That's what's so clear here in the text as he speaks about how they shall go to the Lord, how they shall truly respond to the Lord. They had fake repentance in chapter six, verse one. Come, let's return to the Lord. Let's press on to know the Lord. Verse six, he calls him out of chapter six. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The significance is that God wants people to truly surrender to him. For those of you who are not Christians here, I think there should be kind of an ironic encouragement from this whole morning. You're like, really? Because it seems rather dark and concerning. I think sometimes you might think Christians kind of live in the sweet by and by. If we wish everybody was like us, the world would be a better place. We actually don't think that. And you might actually think that the God that the Christians speak about is a God that seemingly doesn't really kind of acknowledge the reality of this world. Actually, you can hear from the reading of the text this morning, God acknowledges the reality of this world. Even people to whom he has loved rebel, even after he has loved them. But the reality is the same thing that you want is the same thing I want, the same thing people around you want. You want justice. If there ever was a cultural cry that's commonly heard today, it's a cry for justice. But if we're all honest, it's a select application of justice. We want justice for others, but we're not so keen on wanting it for ourselves, Or unless we get to be the judge to determine the justice for us. God is a God committed to justice. That justice is not displayed based upon your understanding of it, but his holiness, his perfect righteousness. And what God does is he extends himself in relationship without compromising his justice, which is why he gives his son who can both accomplish justice and provide forgiveness. Where sin is not diminished in any way redefined, it's clearly identified and acknowledged, but addressed through a substitute, his son Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's what's so remarkable here is that the people can have hope to be restored to their walk with God through their faith in him, through the repentance and returning to him. You've never turned to Christ, friend. You'll find in God justice by him punishing his son for your sins, but forgiving you of yours and giving you forgiveness and eternal life, not because you promised to be perfect from that point on, but because he has loved you because of your faith alone in Christ alone. But that love is only on the understanding that you've given your life to Christ. Why do we love Jesus? This takes us to the third and final part here to briefly mention this and to bring it back to our understanding for Grace Church. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Hundreds and hundreds of years, God sent prophets to his people to try to get their attention. And guess what? <laughs> not only would they not listen, it says in the New Testament in Hebrews, they killed them. Like, how about that for Prophet Appreciation Day? We'd like to thank you for your service. We're going to behead you now. I'd like to thank you for your service. We're going to stone you now. Jesus is the perfect 
prophet because when he speaks, his people listen. The perfect priest because he intercedes for his people that no great high priest could ever have accomplished like Jesus accomplished. And the perfect king. Think of Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. The crowds that went before him, that followed him, referring to Jesus, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. This is the one they've been waiting for. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Later on in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus would say himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All of this hope that Hosea spoke about hundreds of years before Jesus arrived was fulfilled in Christ. Secondly, Jesus is the substitute for our punishment. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we have turned every one of you to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, honestly, if we compare our families to each other, we could sometimes go, I'm so glad I'm not from your family. I like my family. Other of us might say, man, I wish I was in your family. My family's jacked up. We might have the sense of like human comparison. We read the story of Ezekiel 16, the story of Hosea 1 through 14. We realize, man, people are jacked up. And so are we. But Jesus is the substitute for our punishment. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned away, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Third and final, Jesus will reign over all with everyone submitted to him. It's been a theme a verse for us today. We've sung it in our first song. Then Susie came up and read it in our scripture reading. I made reference to it in our baptisms. And it's certainly true even as I cite it to you again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted on him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If there's one thing I hope that Grace Church would walk away from the book of Hosea with as a fresh, deep, and abiding understanding of, it's this. The love of God. The love of God. That God's love would be so overwhelming, so extravagant, so pervasive, so extensive to a people who do not deserve that love. One of the things that we like to say here at Grace Church, elders and I have been talking about this, is that at Grace Church, we joyfully love others as God has loved us. We joyfully Love others as God has loved us. Friends, some of you are in a difficult marriage, a difficult friendship, have difficult roommates, difficult coworkers. You've got difficult relationships in the church. And that difficulty is tempting you to stop loving. Do you understand? God's love for us is not because of our deserving of it. It's a display of his character. And the opportunity that we have to show love to other people is a display of God's character in us, transforming our hearts. 
I mean, think with me, what would loving each other at Grace Church look like? What would the book of Hosea in our hearts being a displayed in us as a loving group of people because we've been so affected by God's love for us as we see in the book of Hosea, what would it look like? How we receive others, the show of love for each other. How we relate to others, how we pursue others, how we pray for others, how we teach others, how we learn from others, how we are patient with others, how we forgive others, how we serve others, how we weep with others, how we rejoice with others. Not a sentimental, emotional, feel-good love, but a resolved commitment to love another, even when it's not easy to do and sometimes very costly to do, loving others the way God has loved us in Christ. Would that be the story, the reputation of the people of Grace Church? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.